as always, it is such a privilege to be with you. I do want to make note, I haven't said this in a long time, uh, but if you are someone who English is not your first language, uh, please let us know. We do translate. I know many languages I can translate to. No, I don't. Uh, Microsoft Word knows a lot of languages, and uh, it's a rough translation. It's not a great translation, but some people in our church, you do like to have uh, your uh, heart language in your hand, and I can give you a copy of the English and of your language, and uh, it'll help you understand and follow along as we do this. I usually do, do send that email out on Sunday mornings very early, and uh, so if you need that, please let the office know, or myself even, and uh, I'll put you on that list and make sure it gets translated for you and sent out on Sunday morning. All right, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. There we are going to find some instruction on marriage and singleness. Yes, this is mostly about marriage, which is why I've entitled today's message Foundations of Christian Marriage. But Jesus doesn't just leave all the single folks out. He talks about it at the end. And so this is, though mostly about marriage, it's about marriage and Singleness. Is this, an, is this an accident that Jesus or Matthew gives us Jesus' words on marriage right after he gives us words on forgiveness? I don't think so. I rely on Lady Eliph's forgiveness every single day, multiple times. I know a lot of you guys, well, most of you guys are worse than me, and so we need to learn how to forgive. Forgiveness is a huge part of marriage, especially. If marriage is supposed to be a picture, as we just heard, of the gospel and salvation, just as forgiveness and repentance, as we walk through that process the last uh, few weeks, that process of the gospel in terms of calling one another back to uh, walking with Christ. Well, let's read this together. Matthew chapter 19. We're just going to be looking at the first few verses today, uh, but I'm going to read the whole section Matthew 19, all the way down to verse 1, all the way down to verse 12. So follow along as I read aloud. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, excuse me, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given, for there are eunuchs who have been so by birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God. Those four words 
four very familiar words of the Bible, I believe are the most controversial words in Scripture. You say, Pastor John, I can think of a lot of passages that have caused more heartache and controversy and more debate than those four words. What about passage, passages about the Israelites being commanded to go to war and kill people? What about passages about things like predestination, God's sovereignty? What about passages that address some of the things that are popular in the world today, like passages in homosexuality and, and gender roles? Surely those are more controversial than the phrase, in the beginning, God. Well, you may be right insofar as public debates go, but I think those four words, if you think about them in terms of a global and universal way, in the beginning God, those four words set God on His eternal and universally sovereign throne. He created it all. He defined it all. He set the laws and the limits of absolutely everything. The universe, the stars, the galaxies, the planets, our planet, the living things on our planet, from inanimate things like mountains and trees, the earth itself, to all the living and moving creatures, all of it. He has absolute authority over all of it. Even the complexity of humans all the way down to the millions of single-cell organisms and beyond to the subatomic level, God defines everything, what they are, the purpose for which they operate, and how they are to operate. All of this is determined by a sovereign God who sits on his own. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The bottom line, in any controversial debate, whether it deals with modern issues, whether it deals with what you believe about creation, what it deals with about homosexuality or whatever. The ultimate question is whether or not you submit to God and what He has defined for us. In any debate, ultimately the question is whether or not the people in the debate believe that He has the full right and full authority to define who we are and what we are to do. If you yield to that first principle assumed and spoken in those first four words of the Bible... You don't have any problem submitting to what God says. You don't have any problem submitting to what He says about marriage. From time to time, I get a call or an email from someone who is, uh, doesn't live here in Hawaii, but they're coming here on vacation, and they're coming here to get married, and they want me to do their wedding. I always say no, not because I don't like them or not because I don't think there might be an evangelistic opportunity there. But one reason I know is that's not, say no is that's not necessarily demanded of pastors that they say yes to everyone who asks to marry them, but also because, and mainly because, I'm not going to stamp my approval on a couple's marriage unless I know they submit to God's plan of marriage. I don't want to stand before a crowd of people not knowing that these people submit to God and submit to His plan of marriage. Of course, that plan begins with submitting to God in terms of salvation. Do they really believe that God has the right, the authority, the sovereignty to determine who they are as spouses in a marriage. So the question here, ultimately, as we study this passage of the next few weeks, is do you submit to God's plan for marriage? Do you submit to God's pattern that He laid out from the very beginning? Here in Matthew 19, Jesus touches on a little of this, but 
I felt it would be good to sort of slow down our pace of Matthew and spend several weeks here because I do think we are in an age of crisis in terms of marriage and definitions of what marriage is and who can be married. And even our own marriages, even if they are sort of along traditional lines, are we in submission to what God has designed for marriage? And so the next few weeks, I thought it would be good to just lay out these foundations of marriage. In fact, I, I... I began to work through this passage, and I gave this, wrote down this outline and sent it out. It was five points, but I realized as I study this, I'm only going to do one point today. So some could say, my sermon is almost pointless. <laughs> one point today. And it's this very first idea. <clears throat> Look at verse 1 of 19, and we'll follow along the narrative. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the Region of Judea beyond the Jordan, large crowds followed him. I've told you this before, but Jesus, in this part of his ministry, began to focus more and more, uh, not, not just on going to Jerusalem, where he would suffer and die, but on discipling his disciples. His, his focus began to turn away from the crowds, and he began to focus on his disciples. However, that doesn't mean he didn't have, he didn't have anything to do with the crowds. Jesus was wildly popular. It was hard for him to get away from the crowds. Even in his last week, the crowds were, were all around him, and even the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin themselves, were afraid of the crowds because they liked Jesus. But eventually, many in those crowds would turn against Jesus and cry out, probably going along with what they've been told, cry out to crucify him. But Jesus was still very popular, and these people were following him, and they followed him to the backside of the Jordan. He began to, to heal them. And as he's healing people and showing this mercy and this grace upon thousands of people, I'm sure, these rascals, the Pharisees, show up. And they began to challenge Jesus. Perhaps, these Pharisees thought... We can get Jesus to stumble in his words or doctrine, and he can sort of indict himself, make himself look stupid in front of the crowds, and so they would try to think up, how to conjure up some trick questions to sort of snag Jesus. They asked there in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're thinking of a question they found that could sort of make Jesus stumble. It says they wanted to test him. This is related to putting him on trial to prove to others that he is a fool and diminish his popularity. There may have been another motivation here. If you remember back in chapter 12, I believe it's around verse 4, it says the Pharisees at this time sought to destroy Jesus. So murder is on their mind. And, and I think all these plots arise out of this desire not just to discredit Jesus, but to eventually get him killed. And so as I thought about this, I thought maybe they were thinking uh, that Jesus, in talking about divorce, could indict himself in such a way that he would be put to death. And, and this seems pretty reasonable because you remember Herod Antipas. You remember John the Baptist was put to death ultimately for condemning the divorce and remarriage, incestuous remarriage, of Herod Antipas. So perhaps they're hoping that Jesus would do the same thing. Jesus would, would begin to speak of marriage in definitive ways, and he would get the ire. He would call upon himself the ire of none other than Herod the Great and eventually be beheaded, much like John the Baptist was. They were hoping that the most famous divorcee of the land would get angry with him, and maybe all the other divorcees, which at that time would have been very numerous. 
So I think the Pharisees were trying to do this. They're trying to coax Jesus into a debate, a, a, a divorce, in hopes that maybe all the people who've been affected by divorce, who, were, who have maybe had divorced uh, one another, maybe they would get angry at Jesus. But I think more than that, they were trying to get uh, the anger of Herod upon Jesus so as to destroy him. Not long before Jesus spoke these words, before Jesus was on the earth, about 100 years before Jesus was on the earth, there was a big debate among the rabbis. One group of rabbis announced that the, the divorce was too rampant in Jewish society, that Jews should not any longer divorce one another, that divorce was no, no longer permitted. Uh, divorce and broken homes were out of hand, and so they took this position. The other group took the absolute, complete opposite view, and they said divorce is permitted really for I- any reason of all. In fact, I-, I found what they said, even if your wife, and of course it was always the man who divorced the wife, women were not permitted to divorce the husband, uh, they said even if a wife burns his bagels, he is permitted to divorce her. So they were saying that any reason you can come up with, you can divorce your wife. Well, where do you think the men of Israel, what, what side did they choose? The latter side, right? I mean, they... They wanted the freedom to move the ladies through as quickly as they got sick of them. You know, the thing about it is that the people of Israel had, on the surface, abandoned the practice of polygamy. They were not married to multiple wives. But in reality, they were still practicing it because they'd marry someone, divorce them, marry someone, divorce them, marry someone. As soon as they got sick of someone, they'd just marry another woman. So in practice, they were married to, to many different ladies. You can imagine the kind of abuse that was happening. You can imagine the kind of hardship and shame that brought upon a woman when she was put away. You can imagine what was happening in those families, the children, the kind of dysfunction and terrible things that were happening, the mixed families, the broken family, really a a nation full of of kids subject to being pushed around and having all sorts of stepmothers and stepfathers and stepbrothers and sisters. Does this sound familiar? I bet most of us in this room, I have, I bet most of us have been affected by divorce. You've got family members, perhaps children, perhaps your own spouse. Perhaps you've gone through divorce. This is a a deeply applicable issue, isn't it? In the state that I'm from, Oklahoma, the divorce rate is surprisingly high for a very conservative state. But the reason is tied to the fact that they were one of the very first states to adopt a no-fault divorce. It used to be that if you want a divorce, you had to prove that someone was at fault. There was someone doing something in violation of the marriage contract. But after that law was made, you could simply go to the judge and say, I have just decided not to be married anymore. I want a divorce. And so it began the downward spiral of families and marriage in my state, and of course many other states have adopted the same mentality. So sad. It's often harder to break financial contracts. It's harder to break a contract and paying off your house than it is to break your marriage contract. I remember growing up, there was a, a, a television commercial, $49 divorce. That's how cheap marriage has become in our society, isn't it? What do we have in America? We have a nation full of broken relationships, a nation full of hurt children, hurt grandchildren, millions of single-family homes. And then you look at the shocking damage of divorce, what happens to the children, what 
kind of chances children have in terms of a positive outcome of life, a flourishing in a single-family home or a broken home. So much dysfunction, so much crime, so much psychological and emotional damage and disorders, all stemming from broken marriages. Broken marriages, of course, are a result of sin. The beauty is, is that the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can redeem you. He can redeem even a broken marriage. He can redeem a divorcee, a six-time divorcee. He can redeem people who've, who've gone through it all and done it all and, and suffer from their own sin and suffer from other sin. Christ can come and, and heal and redeem and repair and bring joy and satisfaction to your life. So much hope for us in Jesus Christ. If we would listen to him concerning marriage, divorce, singleness, we're a society that is perhaps worse than it was in Jesus' day, and so I think it's good for us to, again, take some time and study what are the foundations of Christian marriage. The foundations, if you think through these things, if you think through these implications that Jesus gives us here, apply them to the situations in your marriage, my belief is that you'll begin to build a, a healthy marriage, a healthy view of marriage, at the same time, I want you to know this is not some trick, right? This is not self-help. I'm not giving you five things that will heal your marriage. There are all kinds of other things that go into a healthy, happy marriage. There's the church. There's accountability. There's discipleship. There's, there's uh, all kinds of disciplines. There's praying just to walk in the, in the fruit of the Spirit, live walking in the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. So I don't want you to get the impression that if you memorize these five things, your marriage will be healed. But this is a starting point. This is a foundational ideas of Biblical or Christian marriage. All these things, if lived out and worked through, I believe will provide you a foundation of Christian marriage. Well, what are these foundations? The first one is this, and we're just going to do this one today. Marriage is a treasure woven into creation. What is presented to us in Scripture is that marriage is a beautiful, wonderful treasure that is woven into the way God created the earth. How does Jesus begin his response? They're asking about divorce. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read? You know this. We've already seen this Jesus doing this before. It's a little bit of a jab at the Pharisees and scribes. These guys were supposed to be experts in the Old Testament. And he says, Have you guys even read? It's like going to the gym and seeing a real buff guy and saying, Bro, do you even work out? Or going to a doctor and say, do you know anything about anatomy? Have you ever studied anatomy? He's talking to these guys who are supposed to be experts. But what we find out, and you study the New Testament, you find out is these guys were experts on opinions and their own opinions about the Bible. They were not experts actually on studying and knowing the Bible. And so they looked to the Bible. They read the Bible. Of course, they had read the Old Testament. But they read it simply to affirm what they already believed, not to learn from God. And so they weren't really reading it. Jesus was pointing this out by asking the question, have you even read? And Jesus pointed out their reading is not to know God, but to validate their opinions, as I've said. So he wants them to go back and really consider, really think through what the Old Testament has to say about marriage. So let's do that. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at the, the ideas that Jesus was thinking of when he first 
presented this, these ideas to them. He wanted them to think back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 specifically, and he wanted them to consider the way God had created this earth. Genesis chapter 1, as you know, is a summary of God's creation of the earth. There are those six days represent God's creation of the earth. In those six days, he created the world. As we read it, it's pretty obvious that he created the world with apparent age. Pretty clear he did not create potentialities. He spoke the universe, and instantly it came into apparent maturity as though it had been there for many, many years. He spoke, and our galaxy and solar system was instantly there in motion as though it had been there for many years. He spoke, and full-grown trees and bushes and flowers and grass were, were there, though they were limited, just like the first animals and first humans were limited. They didn't spread all over the earth, but they were in an, in an area. They were limited and would spread all over the earth. They came into full maturity right there at the word of God. And he spoke on that sixth day... And he created a a full-grown man and a full-grown woman. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. He tells them what they are to do, rule the earth, procreate, that is to have children, fill the earth. And it says there in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Inspired description of God's evaluation of his creative work of man is that it was wonderful, that it was exceedingly good. This, of course, would include that first husband and wife. This is one biological man, one biological woman. This is God's plan. This is what God decrees as amazingly good. There were no others. There was no polygamy, or what people call today polyamory, as though that lightens the sin. There were no adulterous relationships, cheating spouses. There was no opportunity for this. There was no homosexuality. There was no opportunity for this. It was very plain, very simple. One man, one woman, committed to one another for life, and God declares this creation very good. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we get to zoom in on that sixth day and find out how this sort of the narrative, how it took place, it's a little bit different than the way the rest of creation happened. For one thing, and there's sort of several differences in the way in, God, in which God created man and the way in which he created the rest of the world. For one thing, God created man alone without the female counterpart. Unlike all the beasts, God created man alone. Two, though God created man from dust, just as he did with other mammals, the difference is God breathed into this man his own spirit, giving man his own image, meaning his communicability. He communed with man. He could now communicate with this being. It wasn't just an animal with no spirit. It was a, it was a being with whom he could commune. It was a, a being with logic and worship on his heart. It was a man who could commune with God. He had the image of God, a spirit with him, within him. Third, again, among many other differences between man and the rest of creation, God made the man king of all creation. 
He granted the man dominion over all the earth. And then it follows forth, he gave that man commands, parameters of how he should carry out his duty. So then, after putting man in the Garden of Eden, that that first day, God gave Adam alone by himself. Adam was alone at this point. All these commands, commands to, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to have authority over the beasts... God paraded, we read it earlier today, we, God paraded these living creatures before Adam. He gave them to Adam as the king of the earth. If you are a, a believer in uh, most creationists, six-day creations would agree with microevolution. There would have been many less uh, animals at that time, just in pairs, but even less uh, divergence and uh, uh, microevolution hadn't taken place. There were not as many animals as we see today, and these animals paraded before Adam in that day. And Adam was to give them some sort of nomenclature to name them. And this is an act of dominion. That's verses 1 through 19 of Genesis chapter 2, sort of a deeper description of what happened on that sixth day. But what was notable as Adam saw and named these animals, and we read this again a moment ago, what was painfully obvious was verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All these creatures, there was this part and counterpart, male and female, but not for man, not yet. Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up, closed, closed up its place within, with the flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Nothing really special happened here, unlike all the other mammals, instead of just creating the woman in the same way, in the same moment that he did all the other males and females, God anesthetized Adam, put him to sleep, and took from Adam's side. The word there, rib, is probably more, uh, better understood as side. It would include rib. It would have included flesh, bone, blood, all of it. Adam even said this, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So God took the part of Adam, and from that part, close to his heart, God created Adam's lifelong partner, Eve. The Hebrew here, man and woman, what we read in English, man and woman, is much like the words man and woman, or male and female. They're related terms, ish and isha. You have this beautiful picture, this intimacy that's different than all the other animals. It's not just a functional intimacy. It is a bonding of spirits. It's the, it's the uniting of, of people who are really part of one flesh. And God gives some commentary here. The commentary is to highlight the, this beautiful treasure of marriage. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See this beautiful treasure. I've I've done something amazing, something creative, something beautiful that's different than all the mammals. I've taken and created this woman from from his flesh. They are one. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the basic structure of human society. It's the basic structure of human life. It stems from God's command for Adam to subdue the earth and have dominion and from the command to procreate, to fill it with people, And from the intimate act 
of surgery that God did on the man. It's the genesis of human relationships. It's the beginning of love and intimacy between man and woman. It's woven into our theology. It's woven into our history. It's woven into our biology. It's woven into the plan of God for man. So you could say it's woven into the, 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 the idea of worship, this idea of man and woman coming together, this beautiful story of flourishing and intimacy and joy and pleasure that God gives to us, this beautiful treasure of marriage. And it is a treasure to be married. Single folks, I want you to know we're, we're going to look at this later on, and Jesus addresses it about the joy it is to be single and special calling and unique things and uh, complementary things that you can do in terms of the kingdom. Jesus will discuss this. Paul will also discuss this. We'll touch on those things. But I just want to say to you, if you're single, don't be irritated at us married folks for always trying to get you hitched. <laughs> Why? We love being married. Most of us do. We love our wives. We love our husbands. We love the joy and treasure of marriage. And we want you to experience that as well. So don't be too irritated. I know we're always trying to get our single folks together. I, did, I had a singles class that I taught early in my years here. I think we had seven or eight people, maybe nine people. And I think all but two of them married each other. The death of a singles ministry. They all just married each other, moved away. Don't be too irritated with us when we do that. In a healthy marriage, what you're doing is you're going back to this treasure that we see in Eden, this treasure that God created here that's woven with God's creative work, this, this beautiful joy that God gives us even before the fall. Well, let's get back to our text in Matthew. The Pharisees are wanting to ensnare Jesus. They want him to get hung up in his words or perhaps get him in trouble with authorities. The first thing that Jesus did was to show them, and subsequently to show us, that marriage is a treasure woven into creation. Let me give you some words of application, and then we'll finish this morning. Number one, take time to worship God for marriage. See this as a treasure. Thank God for it. Worship God for it. You don't have to be married to do that. You can thank God for strong marriages. You can bless God for this, this beauty of marriage, even if you've been around bad marriages or the product of a, a bad marriage or around bad marriages. You can still look back, all the way back, to that original plan and intent of marriage and see the treasure and beauty of it and worship God for it. If you're married, why don't you take time, perhaps every day, take time with your spouse to pray and thank God for the institution he created, this beautiful institution of marriage. You say, Pastor, you don't know my wife. You're right, I don't. But maybe your marriage is miserable because you're not doing this. This is what I tell people when they come in for counseling. One of the first things I do is get them in the Word together in the morning. Get them worshiping God together as a married couple. And oftentimes what I find as I counsel folks, as, as it goes forward, what I find is as things get bad, oh, yeah, yeah, we forgot, we haven't been doing that, haven't been together, haven't been talking to one another, haven't been worshiping God together. Perhaps that's the very reason your marriage is hurting. 
And I found that if a couple just sets their differences aside and refuses to argue and focus their attention on God, to worship Him in the morning, to study the Word together, to unitedly thank God for marriage, even if their marriage is suffering and has a lot of differences, to take time to set those things aside and just to focus on the beauty and joy of marriage and the beauty and joy of God and worshiping together. I think this will be a huge first step toward healing. So first, take time to worship God for marriage. Second, reject anything that is a corruption of biblical marriage. Reject anything that's a corruption of biblical marriage. Do I need to say more? We live in a society that mocks normal, biblically defined, original, God-ordained institution of marriage. One man, one woman for life. Moreover, our society elevates and celebrates even deviations from this idea. And the more deviant, it seems like, the more it's celebrated. I was reading something from Richard Dawkins. He's the famous atheist, and he's lives in just perpetual rejection, and really not just rejection, but hatred of all things Christian and all things scriptural. And I read just this last week that he's starting to embrace mild forms of pedophilia. Oh, yeah, a relationship between, between an older man and a child, sexually speaking. He's starting to affirm this. How terrible is this? Well, that's the logical conclusion of rejecting God's basic plan of one, one woman, one man for life. We believe in the beginning, God. God created marriage in such a way, and we submit to that, and we will find our greatest joy and greatest pleasure in obeying God. We reject any deviation from that. Now, let me just hasten to say this. That doesn't mean be a jerk to people who believe otherwise. Especially your non-Christian friends. What do you expect? Them to be submitting to the Bible? Of course they're going to come up with deviations. Of course they're going to hate the idea of God's plan for marriage. So this is not an argument to be a jerk to people who believe differently. You can love them. You can care for them. And you can demonstrate to them the beauty of the way God has planned it. It's clear here, baked into creation is this plan, God's plan, and all deviations from that plan. In fact, you read the Bible, the story of the Bible really is that. Any deviation from God's plan brings suffering and violence and hardship for us. Anytime people live according to God's plan, there's beauty and pleasure and joy. And so this is true even for marriage. One biological male marries one biological female, woven into worship, into the doctrine, as we'll see more later, even the doctrine of salvation. It's woven into biology or anatomy, no matter what a person feels they are or identifies as. God has woven this into creation, and we are to reject anything that's a deviation from what God has stated. So that's application number two, reject anything that's a corruption or deviation of God's ideal in terms of marriage, which is stated clearly at the beginning. Third, be careful with marriage and relationships. Because it is such a treasure, don't treat marriage as some sort of cheap trinket. It's a serious commitment. It's a commitment that takes a level of maturity. It's a commitment that that oftentimes, as I talk to young people, I, I have to say, you're not quite ready yet. I think you need more time in the oven of maturity. 
I think you need to grow a little more. Somewhere in the 20th century, Western society decided that very young, even prepubescent children should sort of pretend marry others. We call it going out with, or as they get a little bit older and can drive, we date one another. It's something that we invented. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not into that sort of bizarre legalistic world of trying to do everything according to some Jewish laws of courtship or whatever. I'm just saying, I think we need to be careful about these things. We need to be careful with our children. Be careful about just dating random and just pretending to marry these people. And you get into this sort of pretend relationship that you're not quite ready for. Maybe hold off until you're prepared for marriage. Maybe just wait until you're nearing that marriage stage. One thing I did early on with my kids and I don't know how well they'll follow this, but I got them all when they were younger. I got them all to agree that they would not date anybody until I believed they were ready for marriage. That probably won't work out for me very well, but it's because of this. I just, I want to be careful. I dated a number of people and I look back and just say, you know, it didn't benefit me any. It didn't really help me any. I wish I would have just dated my wife and gotten married. I wish it would have just happened that way. I floated around, had this little pretend marriage relationship with these girls, and I kind of wish I didn't have that in my past. Maybe just wait until you're at marriage age. Other ideas, even when you're, even in other situations, it doesn't just have to be do with youth, but even in other situations, as you think about marriage, as you consider this, this is a very, a very important thing that, that we ought to treasure and be very careful about. How many times have you heard this? People get divorced, and then they get divorced again, and they get divorced again. A lot of times it's because, not because they're not good people, but because they're just not very careful with this, and they just jump into this and realize later, wait, wait, I shouldn't have done that. One more application. I'm sure you can think of more. Finally, look to marriage as a parable of salvation. I'm not going to say much more about this because this is my next point. But we're going to learn marriage is a living picture. It's a, it's a parable of the gospel of redemption, Christ the groom, the church, or all the saved people, his bride, this union that happens in marriage will represent to us, Christ and the church will represent to us the, the unity, the intimacy of Christ and his bride. But we will get to that next week. Until then, take time to think about these things, dwell on the idea that marriage is something that is a wonderful treasure woven into creation. And next time we'll see more clearly that it's a parable that pictures salvation. Let's pray, and then we'll have a time of benediction. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful institution. I pray that we would abide by the parameters and abide by the restrictions and definitions that you give of marriage. We know that you do this not for our suffering or frustration. You do this for our joy. You give us these parameters and these ideas so that we can worship you. And so, Lord, since our greatest objective in life is to worship you and to honor you, Lord, may we submit to what you've said about marriage. I pray for the marriages of our church, the marriages in this room, maybe even those who aren't part of our church. We pray that you would work in their marriages, help them to treasure their marriage, love one another, to see what a blessing it is to, to have this wonderful relationship, this, this ancient relationship that is woven into creation. What a beauty it is. And, Lord, we pray that we would not squander these relationships help us to honor you with these things. 
And all things, Lord, we pray that we would honor you. We ask you to do this in the name of Christ. Amen.